Welcome to Paul.com Security Weekly Special Edition Interview with Marty Rash. So welcome. We're here with uh, Marty Resch, uh, creator in, uh, of Snort, co-founder and CTO of Sourcefire. Snort, of course, is the uh, open source intrusion detection system, one of the most widely used. I'm told it gets 10 to 15,000 downloads per week. Um, let's see, Snort has an awesome community around it. Uh, I got involved with the Snort community probably about five years ago. And, uh, you know, been using Snort ever since. And Marty was kind enough to come here. I'm here with the Mason. Uh, interviewing with uh, with Marty. Let's see. So how do you want to get started? I wanted to get started and ask you. Um, I know when I took your SANS course uh, back when you were teaching for SANS mm -hmm. a few years ago, uh, you gave the whole history of how why you created Snort and how that kind of all started. So I think that's where we start. Um, well, Snort started as a uh, um, as a little project for me. Uh, I wrote the original uh, version of Snort over a weekend. Mm -hmm. uh, back in 2001, and the idea behind it, um, there were a few things I wanted to accomplish with it. I wanted to uh, write a system that could, well, use the libpcap uh, packet mm -hmm. capture library, mm -hmm. uh, so I wanted to experiment with that. All the sniffers that I had written up to that point had been uh, Linux specific, right. um, and then our, or even uh, Sun uh, Solaris mm -hmm. um, specific. Um, and I also wanted to, uh, I wanted to, uh, well, I wanted the output from a sniffer to be formatted in a very specific way because uh, I had a uh, I had an application for it. I was trying to debug mm -hmm. some Sun RPC uh, mm -hmm. protocol traffic that yeah. I was generating from a honeypot. TCP dump didn't like uh, didn't work for it. TCP dump was okay, but um, you could do the TCP dump dash x switch and it would dump the it would hex dump the, right. the the packet, but it would hex dump the whole packet. So the problem was is that um, I was trying to lift the RPC payload of mm -hmm. these uh, packets and and. Um, this would dump everything from the from the link layer down. Mm -hmm. So uh, I'd have to sit there and manually, you know, okay, 14, right, and then right. 20, and then go uh, figure out how big the TCP header is or the uh, UDP header, and then you know manually, to, you know, sit there and poke at the screen. And mm -hmm. uh, and the other problem was that um, the, the hex dump was just a straight hex dump. It didn't mm -hmm. have an ASCII translation column uh, down mm -hmm. the side like uh, like Snort has. Mm -hmm. um, so one day I was working on this uh, on this code and. Um, Basically, uh, I had this uh, RPC code that uh, I, I was working on a honeypot, and mm -hmm. uh, uh, it had an RPC service simulator in it. And the problem was that uh, it was spitting out, you know, it wasn't working properly. Mm -hmm. I was querying it, and it was um, uh, not working right. And I started looking at the network traffic, and uh, network traffic was uh, was definitely all jacked up. I mean, it was just, you know, I could tell it was wrong, but I couldn't mm -hmm. tell uh, what was wrong about it. I was trying to figure out if there were any strings in there, so I was sitting there with an ASCII chart mm -hmm. uh, and a piece of paper, and I was transcribing the hex codes back to ASCII, and I realized that the, uh, the program was dumping its, its uh, usage banner out on the network. <coughs> so I said, hey, you know what? There's got to be a better freaking way than manually translating this stuff right, right. <laughs> to get this data. Yeah. This, you know, this took 15 minutes uh -huh. uh, so that I could figure out this thing was dumping the, the wrong, you know, dump, dumping console output to the network. Mm -hmm. um, so. Uh, so that's what I said, okay, well, I need a new sniffer. I, I need something that's going to dump the application layer only mm -hmm. uh, so that I don't have to figure out the offsets mainly. I mean, I'm usually only interested in, in a couple of, uh, uh, you know, different fields in the IP and TCP headers anyway. Mm -hmm. And uh, what I really need to be able to see is the application layer both uh, hex in hexadecimal and in ASCII. Mm -hmm. um, so that um, got me thinking about writing a new sniffer, which got me thinking about writing uh, um, a TCP dump um, 
you know, replacement. And one that didn't suck. Well, it's, 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 some put it. It's, 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 not that, it's not that TCP dump sucks, it's just that it's... Uh, for your application. For my application, it mm -hmm. was, wasn't very, very useful because it had non, uh, you know, the, the output that you get out of TCP dump depends on the protocols and the packets, right? Mm -hmm. So, uh, when you're looking at TCP dump output, mm -hmm. um, you know, the, it's really, it can be difficult to follow, especially if you're a programmer looking for specific things, because you've got to sit there and, oh, this is a DNS packet that's formatted this way, and this mm -hmm. is an RPC packet mm -hmm. that's formatted this other way. Um, so, it was uh, it was pretty frustrating. I wanted something that was going to have the same output for every packet, and, mm -hmm. you know, and I'd be, you know, rely on myself to be smart enough to to uh, extracting any right. additional data that TCP dump uh, usually gave me because I was... But, but then at some point you must have realized that that was useful for other other purposes and other people. Yeah, well, right. So I started writing this thing and, and uh, I was, you know, the applications were, you know, figure out, uh, well, look at look at traffic um, coming out of the network from uh, code I was writing as well as looking at traffic uh, going to my, my cable modem at home. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. I had a cable modem and I was a security guy so I was interested to see if anybody was knocking on the door. This was back... Right. 1998, so there was stuff happening, but it wasn't, uh, it was very, um, uh, it was a lot less sinister than it is today. I mean, mm -hmm. today it's, you know, everybody's got their bots out there roaming around and automated right. exploits and all this crap is, you know, background radiation of the internet mm -hmm. that's sitting there ready to root you if you plug in the wrong stuff to uh, to the network and do so in a completely automated and, you know, mm -hmm. unintended yeah. We're at the SANS conference, we've heard a lot of botnets, and they're more popular. So, um, so basically, uh, um, so I wrote Snort, I played around with it for about a month, and I thought it'd be fun to open source it. So I, I released it towards the end of 1998, and uh, about, uh, in the first release of it was just a sniffer. Mm -hmm. And uh, about two weeks later I started adding, adding in functionality to do packet classification. Mm -hmm. Originally what I was trying to do was be able to automatically classify the, the packets that, uh, um, that I was looking at so that uh, I could have, you know, easy visual indicators. Mm -hmm. uh, and, um, and Basically, that led to the creation of the Snort rules language and the Snort uh, mm -hmm. detection engine. Right. Um, and right about the time where it started taking on features where it could do, you know, payload analysis and stuff like that, was mm -hmm. when people started saying, "Hey, this is, you know, this is kind of like an intrusion detection system." Right. Right. It was. Mm -hmm. It was primitive. Right. Uh, but it was uh, it was effective. Um, you know. Mm -hmm. uh, the well. Well, there were some other IDS systems at the time, and then. Um, shortly thereafter, that there was a two project split. Dragon split off into a separate product, and uh, he worked with um, Rangula. Rangula. Dragon was always its own. Uh, Dragon was always its own code base, and it was written by Ryan. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, Ryan. Now did he participate in the Snort project? Uh, no, not really. Ryan and I were working uh, at uh, the same company at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, well, at, at the front. Ryan was working for a uh, had worked at the same company. Um, and he went off to work for a, uh, an ASP, a, a, mm -hmm. right, a search provider. Right. Uh, and I stayed at the job that I was at, and uh, we collaborated a little bit on uh, thoughts around uh, things like intrusion detection systems and things like that. He, he started writing the Dragon IDS, and I started writing Snort. Uh, he started writing Dragon about a month before I started writing Snort, mm -hmm. if I recall correctly. And um, he, uh, um, you know, he had his own ideas about how it should work and detect right. things, and I, I had mine. Um, so they were, uh, um, you know, developed kind of concurrently with a little bit of, uh, of, of uh, back and forth chatter uh, on ideas. But uh, um, you know, as as he got closer to commercialization, obviously he didn't want to talk to me about the things he was doing very much anymore, and that was fine. Mm -hmm. And I worked on, you know, I worked on the stuff that I was interested in, uh, which is, um, you know, building the the basically through 1999. 
I built Snort up, mm -hmm. ran into kind of a dead end code-wise because it just wasn't going to scale up. So I, I took a step back and architected the system that we're essentially still using today. The, mm -hmm. the architecture, the underlying frameworks are still pretty much the same mm -hmm. uh, as, uh, as they were back in 1999 now. But in 99, you had a pretty big open source following at that point. Um, it was it was getting there. I didn't really realize how big the following was until uh, until I did the Snort One that two release, in, uh, which was a which was a very bad release because uh, I didn't QA it very well. And all of a sudden, I started getting all this email saying, "Hey, this is broken. And, you know, it doesn't work at all on Solaris, and it cores on FreeBSD, and you know, this isn't working, and that isn't working." I'm like, well, "Where did all you people come from?" <laughs> Um, you know, I thought I had like three or four people using it. It turned out I had a few hundred at least using it. Uh, and that was in the that was in the summer of 1999, and that's when I started the the Snort mailing list. Mm -hmm. um, and they were originally hosted uh, by this guy Fyodor Yurochkin out of Kyrgyzstan, at the University of Kyrgyzstan. Not uh, the same Fyodor with Nmap. No, different, different Fyodor. Yeah. Um, so uh, Fyodor, uh, um, uh, not not Nmap Fyodor, Fyodor Yurochkin volunteered to host mailing lists. On his server, so that we could, you know, we could have uh, kind of group communication to mm -hmm. coordinate on fixing these bugs. So very quickly, sort of 1.2.1 and 1.2.2 came out, and the sort of mailing lists were born. Um, so, uh, and very quickly, I realized that I, I had a, you know, fairly substantial, at least hundreds, probably thousands of users by the. What do you think led up to that popularity? Uh, at the time, I, I really don't know. Snort was well. I always, I always architected Snort with uh, um, with a few key ideas in mind: uh, make it simple, uh, make it easy uh, to to deploy and use, and uh, and make it um, uh, you know robust. You know, the, the, the command back back then was uh, "Thou shalt not crash." So uh, if you can get Snort up and running, it'll just stay running. Uh, and and that was the. That was the idea, and because it was simple, it was fairly rugged, and because it was simple, it was easy to, to get up and running with very mm -hmm. quickly. And the Snort rules language was easy to work with as well. Mm -hmm. um, my uh, the, the driving idea, um, from, a, from a formatting standpoint, the idea behind the Snort rules language mm -hmm. uh, is the, uh, the, P, the IPF uh, filter language, mm -hmm. um, the IP filter. Remember the IP filter firewall. Right. Mm -hmm. So it has a uh, it has a preamble, a lot like Snort's preamble, uh, for its mm -hmm. uh, for its blocking. Um, Language, or for its filtering language, mm -hmm. uh, I took that as the as the foundation of, of Snort. So Snort's original rules looked a lot like firewall rules, mm -hmm. simple firewall rules. So uh, I think that's one of the things that uh, led to its popularity. Uh, plus, it was free and easy, and it was the only you know the only free IDS out there that, that people really knew about. For some reason, there were other ones out there like Prelude. Um, and uh, there was one other one, I forget what it is. Oh, bro. Mm -hmm. um, but for some reason, Snort caught on. And uh, I still kind of wonder why um, mm -hmm. sometimes. But, you know, yeah. it, uh, can't argue. <laughs> Did Shadow factor in any of that? Any of your, uh, uh... Um, not, not really. I wasn't really highly aware of Shadow when I started writing Snort. I, I had heard about it, but I hadn't really uh, used it. And uh, the model that it was using was to collect a bunch of traffic and then post-process it. Um, which was was okay, but um, I thought that doing real time analysis was uh, was probably more effective. Um, one of the things that I sought to do uh, over time was see if you know Shadow uses TCP dump as its as quote unquote sensor. One of the things that I wanted to do was make Snort suitable to be a Shadow sensor replacement, uh, so that you could get the benefits of Snort in terms of real time alerting and things like that, uh, and still to get the benefit of all the, uh, the Shadow uh, data mining tools. That was always kind of a little side project was to make Snort robust and useful enough so that you could replace TCP dump with it as a as a Shadow sensor. Mm -hmm. Then you wrote it over a weekend, and uh, 
originally. Originally, and uh, many hours after that, I'm sure. Yeah. yeah. But as uh, I recall from your talk uh, uh, last night, you kind of ran into a snaggle. We couldn't really stress test it. Which, oh, yeah. which brings up uh, you know a QA issue. So that's kind of how you got to, to releasing it and making it open. After that, what kind of uh, response did you get initially? How long before people really started taking an interest in it? Um, you know, we talked about a year or two later, a couple hundred people. You know, was there any kind of ramp up, or was there a you know quiet period where nobody really recognized it? Um, Smart. Yeah. Um, well, the, probably the first four months, uh, I don't think it was very widely used. But I was uh, uh, one of the things that I was doing was I was um, putting it out on the well-known open-source security sites. Uh, so when I did a release, I would release it on PacketStorm, and I would put it up on FreshMeet. Uh, and well, FreshMeet's just an open source site, and uh, a couple other places, and people would see it. And I was doing, you know, I was doing the Cathedral and Bazaar model. Uh, so I was doing, I was releasing early, releasing often. I was doing a release about every two to four weeks. Um, so it was always, you know, it was always on the page uh, when people were looking. Here's a version of Snort. Here's a new version of Snort. So people could see that it was, uh, it was evolving. Um, Snort really kind of uh, started reaching critical mass from a user standpoint right around the time that version 1.5 came out. Once 1.5 came out, um, we had the, and this was in uh, December of 1999, um, once 1.5 came out, we had the architecture that we're still using today with the plugins for preprocessors and the detection language, and a month later the output plugins followed. And once that happened, everybody realized that, hey, this thing is now basically a network Swiss Army knife. If you want to write a piece of C code to do some network analysis task, you could write it as a Snort module and just drop it in the engine and you have all the services that Snort offered, packet acquisition and decode uh, and an output framework for, uh, for reporting results. So if you had some specific application you wanted to do for network traffic sniffing and you didn't want to build all the other infrastructure, Snort was a perfect platform to do it for. So very, very rapidly people started writing Snort plugins. They wrote, uh, you know, uh, statistical anomaly detectors and stream reassemblers and IPD fragmenters and they wrote um, output plugins like for uh, database and for SMB and all this other stuff. So of course, with all these people writing code, it brings up some of the code vulnerabilities that we talked about. Snorks had an, an excellent reputation in that in that space. Uh, so I, I guess I'd like to talk a little bit about some of the vulnerabilities that Snorks had since sure. it's so widely used and maybe focus in on the, on the latest one as well with the back office uh, preprocessor plugin. Mm -hmm. um, so Snorks had a grand total, uh, if I recall correctly, of, of five uh, Vulnerabilities: two DOSs, mm -hmm. uh, two buffer overflows, and a, and a integer overflow mm -hmm. um, that uh, that can be to equal overflow. Um, the uh, in terms of severity of them, uh, all the uh, all the overflows were all in preprocessor modules that can mm -hmm. be turned off by by mm -hmm. commenting outline in the snort.conf when you start in snort. Mm -hmm. So um, pretty easily remediated in those cases. The DOSs that we had were in the uh, were actually in the um, in the decoder. Mm -hmm. uh, that decodes uh, layer two, three, and four. Mm -hmm. uh, those are actually real hard to get around because if you've got a DOS in your TCP option decoder, um, you know you can't turn off TCP. You could, but you miss when the attacks, obviously. Yeah, you could. You could use a DPF filter to filter out the TCP from getting into Snort, so obviously it wouldn't be very useful. Mm -hmm. That's very effective. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, um, but this latest one was was interesting because the, the exploit that's out there now is one a uh, one packet UDP. Well, the, the first Snort buffer overflow that came out in 2003 was a one-packet UDP, but mm -hmm. nobody seemed to get very excited about it for yeah. some reason. Um, it a lot of people got excited about this one recently. There was a lot of, a lot of press about it. Yeah, I, uh, I don't know how much I, I really want to say about it. You know, you don't, you don't want to wave a red flag in front of the, uh, in front of the bowl sometimes. So, uh, 
I guess suffice to say that uh, yes, it was a um, it was a screw up on our part. Uh, we should have uh, we could have seen it, uh, and not allowed it to get into the production code. Uh, it is easily mitigated, and um, it is uh, exploiting it requires uh, um, a, a fair degree of expertise if you're going to exploit it widely. If you don't know what the the um, target is. Um, so the probability of someone exploiting is relatively low. In your I mean, you're the closest to the code. You wrote the original back office code. So. I wrote the original back office code. Not the, <laughs> not the one that the cover overflow. Not the code of the overflow in it. Let's, let's be clear here. I wrote, the, uh, I wrote the code that had the integer overflow in it. That was tricky. But uh, the, uh, the buffer overflows, that wasn't me, baby. Uh, um, no, the, uh, um, you know, it, it's, uh, um, you basically, in order to do this, let's, let's compare and contrast it to the RPC buffer overflow we had a few years ago. The RPC okay. buffer overflow was unencrypted, just straight up buffer overflow. If this length field was greater than X, it was going to overflow the stack. You didn't have to do anything special to make it work. In this one, you've got to get a properly formatted back orifice packet um, mm -hmm. that's got the back orifice header structure, mm -hmm. encrypt it with back orifice uh, crypto uh, routine, and then you've got to uh, put your payload in there, which is also encrypted, mm -hmm. all your shellcode in there, and then get it to the target. Um, and there's, there, there's, it, it's, it's complicated. It's as more as difficult. Yeah, as we, as we like to say, it's, uh, there's a lot of ins and outs. Right. Um, but it's, it's easily mitigated, turn off the back of the And yeah. it's been patched, and what's the latest version of Snort available uh, that patches it? 2.4.3 is the latest version of Snort, mm -hmm. and uh, it has been patched. It's easily mitigated. Just turn off the back orifice preprocessor, you know. Mm -hmm. um, there's very little back orifice traffic on the, on the wire anymore. Right. Uh, you, you could say that the back orifice preprocessor is there more for people who are doing Views of Snort than for actual <laughs> users of Snort. So uh, I don't think anybody's going to seriously compromise their security if they turn off the back orifice detection plugin. Let's, let's fast forward to, uh, to SourceFire and okay. uh, why you created SourceFire and uh, a little bit about SourceFire. Uh, okay, um, let's see. So I created SourceFire uh, in 2001. Um, it was very apparent to me that. Uh, <laughs> Some activity going on outside. <laughs> <laughs> the busy streets of LA. Welcome to LA. <laughs> Seems like there's a, might be a fire someplace nearby. <laughs> so in 2001, I started Sourcefire. Um, I came out of a startup that didn't do very well in uh, um, in 2000. I was looking for uh, what to do next, mm -hmm. and obviously there were a lot of companies that I could have gotten to work for. I was uh, pretty well known for the work I had done in Snort by that point, mm -hmm. uh, and. Um, I, I was interested in, uh, well, I was looking around, I was kind of doing a survey of the industry, and I was trying to figure out what company I wanted to go work for. And at the same time, I had uh, people, uh, friends of mine and advisors telling me, hey, you know, maybe Snort's pretty popular, maybe you want to start a company around it. So the big question was, okay, okay, great, we start a company, how do we sell something that's free? Uh, and uh, there have been a lot of companies that tried to tackle that problem, and, you know, I heard that the source fire is doing it the best right now, so maybe you could elaborate on why SourceFire is so successful with that with that model too? Well, um, you know, we uh, uh, there were a lot of different business models proposed. You know, take Snort, put it on a CD, and sell the CD. You know, with all the other tools required. You know, do like the Mavic CD that's yeah. got everything on it, and sell it for fifty bucks a pop or two hundred bucks a pop, mm -hmm. or uh, you know, trying to get people to OEM Snort uh, mm -hmm. on their systems or you know do X Y Z. Uh, and I. Uh, I'm a product guy. I like building products. I like building technology. So I thought that it would be a better idea to build uh, an appliance-based system. And I thought that we could we could uh, kind of start melding open source and proprietary development if we if we took the open source core and we surrounded it with a proprietary management layer. 
um, that uh, basically had kind of light touch interaction with Snort so that it wouldn't become encumbered by the GPL. Uh, and, and that's what we started to do. And then uh, the add-on technologies that went around Snort, things like SourceFire's Defense Center, which is our central mm -hmm. management console, mm -hmm. and SourceFire's RNA, which is our, our passive network discovery uh, technology, uh, those were proprietary. Mm -hmm. um, so what we did was we, we basically built the uh, uh, the core open source technology. Um, we uh, had a big community that was around it that was mm -hmm. vibrant and active and, and liked the technology. And then we built a series of other technologies that worked uh, cooperatively or in concert with it um, to make it more effective. And then, you know, so basically, uh, you kind of have the open source version of Snort, which is the version most people use, and, mm -hmm. um, and it gets the job done, and people are pretty comfortable with it, but mm -hmm. a lot of people understand that when you really need to scale it up, uh, you need the sorts of things that SourceFire does, and it's probably, uh, there is there is a certain point, you know, you can do the, the total cost of ownership calculations, there is a certain point, uh, break-even point, where you um, find out that it's cheaper to buy our stuff than it is to buy Snort. Yeah, the, the upfront costs are higher, Mm -hmm. um, but the, the ongoing maintenance costs are, are radically reduced, whereas mm -hmm. with open source Snort, uh, you have uh, very little upfront cost, but you've got much higher uh, Android. That's where I we struggle with deploying open source Snort sensors. Who's the management of them? Absolutely. It's configured deploying the, the signatures to all your sensors and then managing the data that comes out of the layer sensors is something that's very difficult to do and open source and requires a lot of manpower. Well, that's that's one of the things that we did right away when uh, when we started SourceFire. Um, I knew that you know one of the dirty little secrets of the IES industry is that nobody likes to talk about data management. So mm -hmm. you go out and buy you know a quarter million dollars worth of vendor XYZ's um, stuff mm -hmm. and then you get it home and you put it in and you know install your sensor everywhere and you mm -hmm. have this flood of data coming in. You call them up and you say, hey, I want to want to manage all these events, and they right. say, go call Oracle and make a really nice database. Mm -hmm. and, uh, <laughs> um, and that's not really, so, you know, there's a lot of hidden costs in that model, right? You got the hardware, you got to go get Oracle, so you got to source Oracle, the hardware to run it on, the open, then we got to hire a DBA to run this thing indefinitely. I mean, the cost can be a lot higher, so what we said uh, was, hey, let's, let's uh, uh, bundle in things like uh, data management systems and reporting, and, mm -hmm. and let's build a appliance management system instead mm -hmm. of having something that you've got to integrate yourself. And maybe take from that market. So is that how you went to VC and got all that money? Um, yeah. Because well, you can't just go to VC and say, hey, I'm already estimated Snort. Can you, you know, give me <laughs> many millions of dollars? Yeah, you're, 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 you're darn right. Yeah, going, going to the VCs in 2001 with an open source story was not a good way to raise money. And, and your local was a pig. Uh, which we'll close later in the interview, too. <laughs> I'm <laughs> sure that didn't help either. Um, well, you know, it was kind of interesting because I'd go into the VCs and I'd tell them the story uh, of, of the technology and the story of SourceFire, mm -hmm. and uh, they'd be looking at, at me like, is this guy for real? And um, I told them what I wanted to do, which is mm -hmm. basically build the sorts of things that we've built. And, uh, and they... <clears throat> They didn't know what, I think they didn't know whether or not to take me seriously. And one of the great things that Snort did for me was that I had a sufficient reputation in the security industry that, you know, when they went out and say, hey, we, we, did, a, uh, uh, we did a conference with this Marty Resch guy today, and he's talking about taking the Snort technology commercial. Uh, you know, is this, is this for real at all? And anybody who'd go to check with in the industry knew a little bit or knew who to talk to about it so that, you know, they can validate that, you know, A, I was for real, B, I've been doing this for a while, and C, you know, mm -hmm. the reason people know who I am is because it's not bad. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. So so that's the, um, I, I think I think it really helped, but we couldn't get money at all until we um, until we started to, uh, to generate revenue. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, nobody would give us the time of day until we started selling stuff. But mm-hmm. right away, when we offered product, we started selling to very large companies, Fortune mm-hmm. 100s, uh, mm-hmm. and that got people's attention real quickly. And, and obviously, that went really well. And uh, the yeah. announcement of Checkpoint, right, just purchasing Sourcefile. Yeah, you guys have had a quite a run. I mean, uh, uh, I was looking at some of these numbers here, and we're talking between 850, 800 percent growth. You know, that's a, that's a staggering amount of growth. Yeah, how did you uh, how did you manage that and, and keep the train on the tracks? Uh, well, one of the things, if you're going to do a startup and you're a techno- techie, basically, uh, if you're going to be the founder of the company, um, unless you really, really, really think you know what you're doing, you've got to be willing to admit the things that you don't know. Uh, you know, basically, when you don't know what you're doing, and you've got to go find people who can do those things. So. Um, Having a big ego as a as a founder doesn't serve you well at all. Uh, if you uh, if you do that, because what it does is, uh, if you can't do things like find the right CEO, find the right sales management team, find the right product management team, be willing to even do things like bring in a VP of engineering to run the day to day product development efforts. If you don't do those things, you're going to limit the uh, potential for success of your company. Well, you've got you know. The, the number one thing that will falter is QA, usually when people are trying to rush things out the door. Yep, yep. We, uh, one of uh, one of my uh, good friends uh, came in to run our QA organization, one of the people I met at the last startup I was at, and uh, uh, he was one of the early hires in the company, and I said, hey, you know, look, we use product to, to rock, and I knew that he uh, he was meticulous enough and smart enough to make sure it would. He's, uh, he's um, been a real asset to the company. Uh, so it's, uh, um, those sorts of things are, are really, um, you know, the things you need to do. You've got to be able to know when to say, I don't know what the hell I'm doing, and let me go find somebody who does. So I didn't know the first thing about being a CEO. I didn't know the first thing about hiring a CEO, but I, I found the right guy and got it in there. And then we hired the right sales management team, we hired the right product management team, and we, we built the company. Sourcefire is an incredibly pragmatic company internally. It's not one of these, uh, you know, political whirlwind mm-hmm. kind of startups where you've got a lot of huge egos that are um, mm-hmm. banging on each other all the time. Uh, Sourcefire is driven to go out and compete in this market. And then, and Sounds like it's really down to business. Yeah, yeah, we don't, we, we didn't, uh, um, up until we moved into our most recent office, so for the first four years of the company, we didn't have, it, like, in terms of in-office entertainment, like pool tables or foosball yeah, or all TVs the or Xbox, all those stuff yeah. things, we didn't have any of that stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, every once in a while, uh, computer games would, uh, would come in and, and take up mm-hmm. people's time for a week or two. Um, but uh, we didn't have anything until we moved into our current office where we finally got a foosball table and an Xbox. <laughs> <laughs> well, your pragmatism seems to be paying off, like I said, you know, an amazing growth rate. Not only that, I mean, uh, uh, the, the awards are just racking up. The awards page is starting to fill up, I see. Yeah, you're going to run out of room with your awards page pretty soon. Yeah. Yeah. Deloitte and Touche, Rising Star, 2005 Boston Sullivan Company. The SC year. Magazine, Best Buy. Yeah, InfoWorld and RSA, both getting awards and NSS Gold. Yep. Do any of those stand out to you uh, in terms of, uh, is, in, is any of your, those your Academy Award or uh, is, um, it, is there one you're still looking for or more? Well, the NSS Gold Award was really cool. Um, the, uh, the Best Buy uh, from SC Magazine was really cool in that competitive in the 12 product shootout. We won the, we, uh, won the Best uh, Buy Award. Um, and, uh, um, and the RSA thing was pretty neat. You know, one of the things that RSA, I mean, Back in 2001, the first year, we, or 2002, the first year we went to RSA, you know, nobody gave us the time of day, they didn't know who we were or what we were doing, they didn't much care what the hell's that pig doing <laughs> in, the, uh, in the booth, you know, that kind of thing. Uh, and uh, um, it's good, 
when you when you do startups like this, especially when you do um, kind of uh, almost speculative technologies like RNA, I thought I personally thought RNA was a good idea, and I convinced a bunch of other people that it was a good idea. We went out and built it. Nobody ever seen it before, that kind of technology before, really. Um, so when you go to RSA and get validated that you you know you're not the dumbest guy in the room, <laughs> that's nice. <laughs> and uh, you know if if nothing else, you know it's it's not so much striving to be the best, it's striving not to be the dumbest. And uh, sometimes if you do it right, you end up being the best, I guess. Um, so it's uh, it, it's been pretty interesting. Um, you know I, I I never expect us to win any of these awards. In fact, uh, you know I'm I'm like the. Uh, um, Kind of the, the self-doubting sort of guy who uh, I really I never think I've really never thought you were going to get an A in the test, but always did. Re well, <laughs> in high school, not so much in college. <laughs> but uh, um, yeah, and uh, I, I I never worried about it much uh, back in the old days. But you know now that we're we're competing on basically a global stage with all the other biggest vendors in the space. I mean, you know, Cisco is one of our primary competitors. They're freaking huge, mm -hmm. and. Uh, um, and we're competing with them toe-to-toe uh, -to -toe. and you know from a technology standpoint I, I don't think anybody believes that uh, our technology is any way inferior to theirs and I think a lot of people think it's, it's superior so I think the new technology is very cool I heard you speak about RNA mm -hmm. and it's a very different way of looking at security than I think I've ever seen before I mean you can tell us a little bit about the RNA and how it differs from traditional methods the, the black fall of 2002 uh, yeah <laughs> Yeah, well, the, uh, so the Black Fall of 2002 was when uh, uh, Gartner decided to declare our core technology, Intrusion Detection Systems, dead. So, uh, you know, we get this, uh, this report from Gartner, Intrusion Detection Systems are dead, go buy Intrusion Prevention Systems, you know, if you can block it, why don't you prevent it? It made it hard for a lot of people, especially people who have managers, and managers read Gartner and believe mm -hmm. everything they say is pretty much verbatim. It made it hard betting for the entire security community. Yeah, and Gartner, you know, I'm going to be diplomatic about this. Gartner bears a lot of responsibility for mm -hmm. their for the content that they generate, and sometimes I suspect that, that maybe they don't they don't understand that as much as maybe they should. Mm -hmm. I don't know, but um, yeah, they they declared our our core technology to be dead. They said that something we didn't have was the the next generation, the future, and uh, um, you know, and they came out with this great uh, chestnut. Uh, you know, if you can detect it, why not prevent it? Mm -hmm. um, and you know, uh, I've been working on intrusion detection systems for a long time. So having somebody come in the room and say, "If you can detect it, why not prevent it?" is, uh, you know, is kind of like, like we hadn't thought of that before, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, when did Snort first have the capability to prevent attacks? Uh, I think it was either in late '99 or early 2000. Mm -hmm. It was the first mm -hmm. uh, inline extensions for Snort. We call it Gateway IDS at the time because mm -hmm. we don't know anything about marketing. Um, <laughs> Uh, in the open source world, anyway, uh, and the uh, um, so the the idea of gateway IDS, we saw it, it was interesting, but um, you know, from my standpoint, as a, as a person who who builds these things, really understands the nuts and bolts of them, a, a simplistic question like if you can detect it, why not prevent it? It's uh, um, you know, it's one of those things where you know, it's kind of like you're the you're the you're the particle physicist standing next to the accelerator, and uh, mm -hmm. somebody comes in and says, uh, you know, why, why are we spending all, all this money on, uh, on particle physics? Uh, you know, what, what good comes of it? Mm -hmm. And you sit there and it's such a, you know, it's like going from fifth gear to reverse, mm -hmm. uh, basically. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just such a, you just have to shift your, your thinking so much. Yeah. And it's like, well, you know, and you sit there and you try to simplify and you try to simplify and you try to simplify because you're so deep in the technology. It's like, look, we didn't have particle physics, we wouldn't have TVs. <laughs> <laughs> can, I make you, can I make you understand that? 
Um, and the same thing with intrusion detection systems. Can you detect it, why not prevent it? Well, just because you can detect it doesn't mean that you should prevent it a lot of times, right? Or just because you will eventually detect it doesn't mean that you're going to be able to respond to it in a timely fashion. And there needs to be some other intelligence, a lot more intelligence, to determine whether or not you want to block that attack or not. And, and typically that's involved someone looking at it with the knowledge to say, hey, you know, I know that this attack is going to an Apache server, but it's an IS exploit. Or, you know, we, we, don't, we don't use IS in our environment or whatever the case may be. So that the admins have the intelligence and right now, it's a manual process. Mm -hmm. But with your RNA product, you seem to have solved some of those problems uh, and, and made all these devices talk to each other, which I think is really great. Well, RNA is built to, um, RNA is built to give you the capability to do intrusion prevention, mm -hmm. but not rely on one box sitting in line and already knowing about the attack in order to do it. RNA is built to let your network, all of your infrastructure, participate in the intrusion prevention process, which mm -hmm. has, you know, kind of these, has this, this kind of temporal element to it where, mm -hmm. you know, the attack's not always going on, right? The attack happens at a moment in time, but mm -hmm. there's this long period before the attack where you can prepare for it. There's this long mm -hmm. period after the attack where you deal with, with mm -hmm. the after effects of it, if there are any. Uh, and something that the intrusion prevention vendors don't take into account at all um, mm -hmm. is the fact that, you know, you've got this, this continuum of uh, time over which these attacks occur. And their their worldview is, you know, it's like, what can, it's like, trying to look at the world through a straw. Mm -hmm. uh, their worldview is, I, I block the attacks when they happen. Well, that's great, but uh, how about blocking the attacks before they happen by making sure you're not vulnerable, making sure everybody mm -hmm. is compliant with devices that are in your network are supposed to be there or doing things that they should be. Mm -hmm. So RNA was... Um, and that's really intrusion prevention, right? Like you were saying, right. those preparatory steps are in preventing the intrusion, identifying it when a probe scan is coming right. in. Well, if you can see that and do something about it, that's part of preventing an attack. Right. Yeah, and, and this, you know, intrusion prevention is a marketing term, but intrusion prevention is, is really the, the goal of security, right, right. right. In, a, in a lot of ways. Um, so, uh, um, or, or the goal of network security that's, you know, that's focused on, on um, malicious and unauthorized use of network. Um, so we, we, we come up with the, well, I came up with the idea for RNA back in 2000, and uh, um, I just didn't, didn't get a chance to implement it. So we had Gardner declare our, our core technology dead, and obviously we had a lot of pressure internally to go mm -hmm. take the inline pad for Snort, integrate That's it, and get an inline product out the door. But I said, uh, uh, let's not do that. Mm -hmm. uh, let's go build this other technology instead, mm -hmm. because by the time, when we get this technology done, mm -hmm. we will have an unfair advantage over our hardware accelerated uh, mm -hmm. competitors, because all they will be able to do is block inline. We will be able to provide pervasive, continuous intrusion prevention mm -hmm. for the entire network. Uh, no, no matter if we knew about the attacks ahead of time or not. So it was, it was, uh, you know, they were they were basically putting a turbocharger on the engine. We were building rockets. Right. Uh, so yeah, obviously you had some advanced uh, technology, you had some advanced ideas, but you had to go to your development team and <laughs> and tell them about it and say, look, this is what you guys have to implement. So what was looking at faces when you told them that? <laughs> um, yeah. So I, I gathered my uh, I, I did a prototype of RNA and uh, I did a. Uh, uh, I showed that it could work to my CEO and to the board, and they got excited about it and said we should go ahead and build it. So I pulled my engineering team together and I said, we're going to go build this new technology, mm -hmm. and it's going to do this, and this is how it works. It does passive network discovery, it has mm -hmm. OS fingerprinting and protocol discovery, uh, and it will infer vulnerabilities, and it will infer the topology of the network and all this other stuff. And I you know, whiteboarded the whole thing out, and then I 
turned around to a room, a, a room full of faces looking at me like I, you know, <laughs> like I was talking gibberish. Uh, you know, these guys were like, "This will never work, man." Yeah. You, Typical you, engineering attitude. Yeah, right? as, I, as I like to say, it's uh, you know, when you're, when you're in a room full of engineers, there's nothing better than a, a bright, shiny idea for them to crush that, <laughs> they, that they enjoy. Um, so, uh, so yeah, I got a, uh, I got a lot of uh, kind of, you know, and I had people that I respect a lot. Um, telling me, uh, you know, people that I hired uh, personally or I, mm -hmm. I thought that we really need to bring in, I had mm -hmm. been telling me, hey, Marty, this is a really dumb idea. Mm -hmm. uh, this isn't going to work, and here's all the reasons. And I understood what they were telling me, but I, uh, I decided to rely on the fact that, um, that I thought I knew more about human nature than, than they were mm -hmm. um, kind of There are a lot of technical reasons why RNA might not work, but the fact is that human nature is what it is, and uh, people deploy their networks in uh, uh, stock configurations a lot of time in mm -hmm. terms of blocking things, filtering things, running traffic, and things like that. Um, RNA is not a technology that's perfect, but uh, in the general case, it works really, really well. And in fact, by the time we implemented it, we figured out it worked better than we thought it was going to. Mm -hmm. But yeah, there was a lot of initial resistance. I actually wrote the uh, uh, foundations for our RNA myself. So mm -hmm. we built the prototypes, got the green light to go ahead and build them, mm -hmm. or build it. And then uh, um, I started coding, basically, mm -hmm. and uh, working on hiring in a team to turn it into a product. So it was uh, it was pretty interesting. Now, was it RNA that attracted Checkpoint primarily? Did they say, well, look at this technology, nobody else has it? Was that one of the primary motivators of that? Um, I think that, that that had a good amount to do with it. Uh, RNA, or, um, Checkpoint and uh, Sourcefire kind of have a, have a common vision of uh, automating network security. And mm -hmm. if you're going to automate network security, you need to have something like RNA to tell you what you're defending and how it's changing. Mm -hmm. But if you don't have RNA, uh, you're making decisions basically in a vacuum. Um, mm -hmm. So if you're going to do uh, security automation, that means you're going to do, be doing automated decision making. Mm -hmm. If you're going to do automated decision making, if you don't have the information that RNA gives you, mm -hmm. you got nothing. You can't do it. So obviously you have to integrate with a lot of devices, or interface with a lot of devices. So mm -hmm. with you partnering with Checkpoint, you're going to have to interface with other people, people's firewalls. Is that is that a reality? Or are you going to focus on Checkpoint's firewalls solely? The, uh, the ways that we built the interoperability layer is built as an open uh, uh, architecture so that anybody can interoperate with it. Mm -hmm. uh, and uh, you know, the thing that we're interested in doing is basically setting up, a, uh, setting up kind of an open um, standard for doing these things. Mm -hmm. And if people want to come play, uh, play the game and play by our rules, then you know, it's all out in the open and people can choose to sign up for that. And if, mm -hmm. you know, somebody wants to go do, uh, spend uh, you know, two or three years mm -hmm. doing a, a uh, uh, RFP draft and RFC draft, um, <laughs> then uh, um, you know you, you can certainly do that as well. But we're, we're just going to go out and implement things, and then uh, we'll do the RFCs later after we've got something that, uh, that um, a few dozen companies are using. Well, I, I mean, uh, there's been a lot of debate out there about the best way to do it and uh, about the best approach in general. We talked about IPS systems a little bit. There's certainly been a lot of bit debate in the IPS space and. Uh, that's the wrong way. You've got a lot of the competition going in a different direction, or maybe secretly scrambling to try to keep up with you. Mark will dictate. What do you see on your roadmap for the future in terms of the, uh, yeah, the, the down the road and, and uh, what's over the next hill? Um, well, the things that we're uh, going to be working on uh, kind of in the near term. Um, we've got some scalability and extensibility um, things that we're uh, we're going to uh, be putting together for our, our product line, and obviously the, the integration with the checkpoint technologies. Um, and then uh, the other things that I'm uh, interested in, 
basically, if you really want to um, realize the uh, the full benefits of RNA, you're going to be you're going to need to make this uh, this common referential framework, which I've been talking about um, in in the conference here for the last couple of days, so that everybody can speak the same language. So essentially, what you need to do is build a, a you know to coin a phrase a situational awareness fabric that people can subscribe to. They su can subscribe their technologies to, so that their technologies can participate. Uh, in um, receiving the information that RNA is generating about the state of the network and the state of the devices in the network, uh, and so that they can use that to, to do their jobs more effectively. Um, so building that is going to take some doing, and also uh, building these uh, what we call target-based technologies. So most of the network security technologies that um, we deal with day-to-day -day right now don't really have a whole, uh, well, they, they don't have a, a persistent notion of a defensible target on the network. So firewalls, IDSs, IPSs, vulnerabilities management systems, etc. These things don't really uh, take into consideration that you know we have these persistent objects on the network. They just run uh, and they do their thing. Like an IDS or an IPS runs um, protocol analysis in terms of the protocols themselves, never taking into account what the what the target looks like. Well, if you don't do that, then you can pass traffic that looks different to the target than it looks to you. So. We need to impart data about the targets to the technologies themselves, and I call these target-based technologies. So for example, uh, a target-based intrusion detection system would get a complete map of the network um, of the attributes of the devices on the network loaded into it at runtime that would automatically configure itself to provide optimal defenses for every device in the network, uh, be it an IDS or an IPS. Uh, so you need to scan the network. No, no. We use RNA to discover the network. Mm -hmm. RNA discovers the network by letting the devices that are in the network mm -hmm. reveal themselves by the traffic that they generate. Looking passively. Right. right. Passive all, the, all those systems are, you know, uh, points in time. Intelligence, right. 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 Even, even access control and antivirus are all points in time. Mm -hmm. Right. Which puts you in a reactive mode. Right. They're essentially batch processes in a lot of cases. And what they need to be is they need to be real-time processes, right? They need to be real-time event-driven processes. But, you, know, you remember back in the early 90s when people were talking about, oh, you know, we're going to event-driven systems. Uh, like GUIs and things like that, mm -hmm. or um, you know, instead of batch processing, where you know, loop run and look at the event queue periodically. Instead, we can have real-time preemptive mm -hmm. um, things like GUIs. Do you this is really the next phase, the next revolution of computer security? I, I came up with uh, a set of uh, phrases that didn't catch on. I called a lot of these <laughs> things. Uh, I, I frequently. Um, I called these things uh, event-driven event security. I had this whole spiel on event-driven security. Um, um, We'll pass out some more beers here. Let this be too formal. Um, so event-driven security, the idea behind it was what, what our, uh, our true intrusion prevention uh, um, set of uh, slides has, uh, has become. But the, the idea of event-driven security was that we were going to be uh, having all of these systems capable of recognizing security events that are happening on the network in real time and being able to participate uh, by uh, uh, Basically, we'd have a policy-driven backend that could uh, um, look at all the data coming off of all the systems and make decisions and push those decisions out into the awareness fabric that mm -hmm. would, uh, and all the applications that subscribe to it would be able to recognize the information and perform their role mm -hmm. for, uh, mm -hmm. um, for basically uh, for uh, mitigating the attack or logging it or you know, mm -hmm. do, do, doing whatever it is they can do. Um, so do you, you're not going to integrate Nessus into your product though? So that's another big headline now that everyone wants to talk about the, the decision of Nessus. And you know, we've covered it, I think, extensively how successful the open source model is and how important that is and how important it is to keep, keep short open source. Um, so uh, will Nessus play into the product or? Our, our next rev of the, uh, um, the product that's uh, going to be coming out um, towards the end of this year 
uh, has a interoperability interface for Nessus. So mm -hmm. one of the things, one of the questions we've gotten about the target base, or not the target base, the RNA technology mm -hmm. over the last few years is, uh, okay, it's great, you can passively discover the network, but what if I've got a box that's sitting on the network that never generates packets? Mm -hmm. That's one, mm -hmm. and that rarely ever happens. But the other one that is a, a more valid case is, uh, I've got a device that's participating on the network, but port 445 is open, and nobody ever talks to it until the worm hits. Mm -hmm. um, how do you guys account for that? Uh, how, how will you figure out that, that port is open? Mm -hmm. um, so the idea is to be able to take a technology, a vulnerability analysis technology, and be able to uh, surgically direct it at targets um, based on uh, our policy engine. Um, mm -hmm. So when a device shows up, it's a Windows box, you know, have Nessus fire up and scan port 445 to see if it's open or not, mm -hmm. maybe what it's vulnerable to. Um, so the, uh, um, the idea is to be able to do this kind of target-based vulnerability management where um, the policy engine dictates how the scanner operates, so the scanner has to do much, much less scanning uh, in order to uh, figure out information on the targets, and basically what it's doing is filling in the blanks that are left uh, because uh, um, of the passive system is there. So, um, yeah, that's, that's coming up in our, in our next release, and, uh, um, you know, uh, it can work with um, uh, open source Nessus or, uh, mm -hmm. uh, you know, or the... the and there are currently three, three forks now for open source Nessus. Right. So I think that clearly exemplifies the value of keeping keeping everything open source. Yeah. You, you don't want to alienate people, which I think is what, what can happen. Yeah, well, you know, if you're going to make a commitment to open source, you, you need to be committed to it. So, mm -hmm. um, and you've done that very, very successfully. Yeah. Obviously. I don't think there's any value in, in taking a technology like Snort and closing it down. Mm -hmm. um, I think that there's more value in keeping it open and mm -hmm. having a, a big user community mm -hmm. uh, and competing with people who use Snort and their technologies, those who choose to compete with us, mm -hmm. um, by out-innovating them. Mm -hmm. So that's mm -hmm. the... How many patents on the RNA technology? RNA has something like, uh, I think there are eight patents that are pending right now and there's mm -hmm. several others that are in the works. Mm -hmm. uh, so RNA is a, is a proprietary technology that's mm -hmm. completely separate from Snort. Mm -hmm. um, but it is heavily patented because there's lots of original ideas in there. Mm -hmm. So you're a big Mac guy. We're going to try and wind, wind down now. Um, you, you were telling me previously that uh, your entire office is all Mac, and that <laughs> when you travel, you travel with this kit. And then we've always talked about what's in the kit when you travel. <laughs> <laughs> we call you iMarty. <laughs> what are we calling you lately? Well, the, um, well, SourceFire. SourceFire was all Macs for, uh, for um, up until we had about uh, uh, eight employees. Mm -hmm. uh, so uh, in the period, there was a period in early 2002 where uh, everybody was running on Macs that lasted for about two months or so. Mm -hmm. um, and then we uh, got a, uh, some people in who, who just didn't, uh, weren't capable of, of grokking the Mac. Um, <laughs> and they transition over from Windows. Um, so we had to start, so what eventually happened was we, we developed a very heterogeneous environment inside SourceFire. We have a combination mm -hmm. of, uh, there's a, a, a minority of Macs, there's a bunch of Linux, mm -hmm. uh, engineering uh, use of Linux heavily, mm -hmm. and then uh, there's Windows for uh, many of the business people and sales and things like that. Mm -hmm. um, anyway, the stuff that I uh, carry in my kit, uh, let's see. I carry, uh, I've got my 15-inch uh, PowerBook, mm -hmm. uh, I've got a Airport Express uh, mm -hmm. access point, mm -hmm. uh, I've got a, um, I got my iPod, 60 gig uh, iPod photo that I, I recently picked up, um, I've got a, uh, let's see, what's the other stuff I've got, I've got a Canon uh, SD400 digital camera that I like to carry with me, um, I have, uh, I usually carry a couple of batteries when I'm traveling, um, mm -hmm. a couple of spares, plus I've got my, uh, my uh, 
my power pack. Uh, I usually carry a little travel mouse with me too, um, and uh, uh, several widgets for my uh, for my um, iPod, like mm -hmm. a camera connector for it, so I can offload pictures straight on the iPod if I want to. Uh, we like to see people embracing the, the Apple technology. It's, it's, it's great, you know. I like I like just using it, and not having to think about it. Yeah, you know, exactly. uh, whether or not it's going to work. Mm -hmm. uh, and then uh, I've we got have enough other problems to solve. Exactly. Right? Especially yeah. you've got a lot That's of other right. engineering problems you've got to solve. More business more problems, patient. right? I mean, you mm -hmm. know, I just want that. I want. I don't, I don't want to have to. You know, if I'm sitting on an airplane for 12 hours flying mm -hmm. to who knows where in the world. Uh, I don't want to have to recompile the kernel in order to get the DVD player to work, right? <laughs> <laughs> um, so uh, um, then I've got a I've got a small bag that's got uh, a lot of cables in it, and uh, I, I have this kind of miniaturization fetish uh, <laughs> that I uh, um, that I've uh, had for about the last three years, where I'm always trying to miniaturize um, what I've got. So I've got a lot of those uh, zip cables mm -hmm. um, for connecting cameras, and, and like mm -hmm. uh, I've got a zip cable that's got a phone charger on it. I've got a Trio 650. Also, that travels with me everywhere, mm -hmm. um, so uh, I don't have to carry a charger for the for the trio. Mm -hmm. uh, I just have to carry the um, zip cable, and it can charge off the USB port on the Mac. So when I travel internationally, I don't have to. I have to carry power adapters for the Mac, and that's mm -hmm. it. Mm -hmm. uh, so I can recharge my phones. I can recharge my uh, uh, my iPod. I can mm -hmm. charge everything just off the Mac. Mm -hmm. uh, and I don't use a electric razor, so I don't have to worry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. So I, I guess one of my final questions was. Um, the, the Snort logo is a thing, as we all know, and Checkpoint, based in Israel. <laughs> We've all been talking about this all oh, week. Yeah, we're we're dying to know. <laughs> it's kosher, we understand. Yeah, it's a kosher thing. Uh, I don't think, uh, uh, when you have a piece of branding like Snort, um, uh, most marketing people would be relatively uh, loath to change it. So. And I don't think anybody in the uh, Israeli side of the world seems to have uh, very much of a, of a problem with it. They seem to kind of, uh, they think it's funny, uh, as far as I can tell. Well, that's good. Is, we all, we all love the thing. We all love yeah. the shirt. We thank you for the shirt. For all all the adoring the Snort Spy shirt, shirts. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, you know, that's my, uh, that's my design on the back. Snort saved my bacon. I uh, came up with that. Uh, nice, nice, very nice. Well, regardless of which barnyard animal it is, you know, snow is obviously a revolution in technology. It's changed the industry. RNA is an extension of that vision. It's, you know, it's winning awards. Uh, I personally can't wait to see what you come up with next. Thanks, thanks. Yeah, well, I'm, I'm kind of looking forward to seeing what I come up with next, too. <laughs> Hopefully it'll be cool. <laughs> you can uh, find out about more of the products on soulspire.com, and uh, this podcast will be available on paul.com.com. And that's it for today.